Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning is in Paul's letter to the Romans. As we take a break from the series we just began in 1 Corinthians, that we might have a preparatory sermon today for the Lord's Supper, and then next week, of course, observe the Lord's Supper. We turn now to Romans chapter 12, and do a short reading, just the first two verses of that chapter. This is the word of God, as the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, the apostle, to write to the brethren in Rome in his day. Again, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. This is the word of the living God, inspired by him, and therefore inerrant. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that sends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its uh, preaching, and its hearing. Lately, in preparation for the observance of the Lord's Supper, as we've been uh, observing that sacrament uh, uh, for the week prior, as we've preached in preparation for the sacrament, we have been reflecting on those promises that those of us who are members of a Reformed Presbyterian Church have made, those promises uh, to which we committed ourselves as communicant members in that covenant of communicant membership. Uh, Some here, I think uh, most of us here are communicant members. We have a few young folks who haven't uh, maybe taken these vows as yet. Some uh, listening uh, may not be Reformed Presbyterians, but uh, these covenant commitments have applications for all Christians, and especially the one with which we will deal today, because it has to do with repentance. So you'll notice that the, the title of today's sermon is simply that, Repentance. So unlike most of my sermons, I won't be carefully expositing a single passage of Scripture this morning, but rather uh, this will be a a topical sermon drawing on several Scriptures. Uh, In the last two communion preparation sermons, we covered the first two of the vows of communicant membership uh, in the RPCNA. Vow 1, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God, the only infallible rule for faith and life? And vow 2 was, do you believe in the one living and true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as revealed in the scriptures? Uh, Today I want us to think about the the third query, the third question to which we commit ourselves, that, that commitment that we make in this covenant of communicant membership which is this, do you repent of your sin, confess your guilt and helplessness as a sinner against God, profess Jesus Christ, Son of God, as your Savior and Lord, and dedicate yourself to his service? Do you promise that you will endeavor to forsake all sin and to conform your life to his teaching and example? It so happens that just about, uh, right about the time that I had just prepared uh, this sermon, that I was doing reading for the upcoming 
meeting of Synod and found that we actually have a paper coming to Synod uh, moving, making the, the argument that we should separate the different parts of this particular question. But I'm going to deal with them together today. I will break them down. Uh, so we'll break that down into its component parts, but I'm going to treat it as one uh, covenant commitment that we have made. And we'll see some scriptures uh, which teach the things that, are, that, are, uh, that we commit ourselves to uh, in this covenant promise. But the main point is going to be this. Live a life of repentance. Christians must live a life of repentance. And living that life of repentance involves, as this query says, number one, confessing your guilt. Number two, confessing your helplessness as a sinner against God. And third, professing Jesus Christ, Son of God, as Savior and Lord. And fourth, dedicating yourself to Christ's service. Fifth, endeavoring to forsake all sin. And finally, sixth, conforming your life to Christ's teaching and example. Uh, each of those could well be a sermon. But the query begins, do you repent of your sin? And notice that the sin there appears in the singular, and I think that's on purpose. This isn't just talking about the many individual sins that we commit, but also our general condition of sinfulness. Do you repent of your sin? Do you turn away from your own sinfulness? As Paul says in Romans 3, 10 through 18, he cites several scriptures. There's a citation from Psalm 5, there's Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, Psalm 53, 1 through 3, Ecclesiastes 7, 20, Psalm 5, 9, uh, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 110, verse 7, Isaiah 59, 7 and 8, uh, Psalm 36, 1, uh, are all quoted and, and they're brought together here in Paul's statement here about the sinfulness of mankind. I think that when you do this, uh, Denny Pruto, you know, I believe, has heard say that the technical theological term for this is smushed. When you put all these things together, as Paul says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. I'll just stop there. I think the, God does not think of us as good people. If we were to, uh, to say that the reason that we should go to heaven is because I'm a good person, well, what standard of good are you looking at? If you look at the standard of God's perfect goodness, we don't need it. This is what God thinks of fallen mankind. He goes on, Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the general condition of fallen man. Paul strings all of these Old Testament statements from the Lord about human beings together to show that this depraved nature is the state of all mankind apart from God's grace other than Jesus, who alone has been righteous. 
if we are to escape the just wrath of God, which is going to come upon that rebelliousness, upon that sin, we must be saved by God's grace. He has to give us that free gift of salvation, as Paul tells the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians 2.8, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the free gift of God. Well, the necessary sign of that grace at work is going to be repentance. You can certainly have assurance that God's grace is working within you, and a big sign of it is, are you a repentant sinner? Not are you a good person who thinks you're not a sinner, but are you a repentant sinner? As Peter told those who were cut to the heart by his preaching of Christ when he said, you have crucified God's Holy One by the hands of lawless men. The Holy Spirit at work within them cut them to the heart. And they said, well, what must we do? Of course, uh, if it's on our own, think of the, the man, the rich young ruler, came to Jesus, good, good master, what must I do to be saved? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. The problem when people asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved, was that doing wasn't the problem. It was that you needed a change of heart from God. But these are people whose hearts are being changed. They're cut to the heart. And so Peter says, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. To repent means to turn away from a course that you are on. The Old Testament Hebrew term uh, means basically turning around. So in regard to sin, it means turning from sin to God. As an analogy I've used before would be that it's, uh, it's not just recognizing that you're going the wrong direction, but it's turning around. So if you were intending to go to Kansas City and you got on I-70... And you noticed after a while that, that those signs that were telling you how far away Denver was or getting, <laughs> getting the mileage is getting lower and lower, uh, you think, oh, I'm heading in the wrong direction. I meant to go to Kansas City. And so uh, you haven't repented just by acknowledging, oh, I'm going the wrong direction. You haven't repented until you've taken an exit gone and gotten on the highway going the other way. Now you've turned around and you're heading in the right direction. True biblical repentance means turning away from sin to God. Interestingly, the Old Testament Hebrew term that means turning around, turning from sin to God, is most often translated in the Greek of the New Testament as this word metanoia, which literally means a change of mind. It's the word found throughout the New Testament for repentance. And so we can see an aspect of both of these, turning around and changing the mind. And it's not simply a change of mind as in, you know, I thought that I might get some pizza for lunch, but I decided to buy a sandwich instead. Uh, changed my mind about what I would eat. No, uh, it's a change of mind more like think, think of getting an oil change in your car. If you change the oil in your car, you drain out the old oil first, and then you put new in. It's rather like the change of heart. In fact, it's really the same 
concept here, change of mind and change of heart, that's spoken of in Ezekiel that we were reading about this morning in the adult Sabbath school class, where God says, I will take out your heart of stone and I will put in a heart of flesh, a soft and pliable heart. So it's like having your mind taken out. You're getting a transplant. The the old mind is taken out. A new mind is put in. You remove the old. You replace it with the new. In Romans 12.2, Paul thus speaks of the renewing of your mind. A life of repentance. You're given this new mind and this new heart that loves Christ and knows Christ. And now you also continue in a process of being renewed in the mind, uh, being more repentant over time. Such repentance involves several things. Number one, confessing your guilt. So of course, if I'm going to turn around because I'm on I-70 and I'm heading the wrong direction... Recognizing I'm heading the wrong direction isn't the totality of repentance, but it's necessary in order for repentance to happen. I'm not going to turn around until I realize I'm heading in the wrong direction and acknowledge that. So one step in repentance is confessing your guilt. So the covenant query simply asks, do you confess your guilt? Psalm 51.3, David writes, For I acknowledge my transgression." And my sin is always before me. He acknowledged that he was a sinner. And in particular, this grave sin that drove him to this repentance. He says, I acknowledge that. My transgression. My sin is always before me. I recognize not only that I am a sinner in general, but I recognize this particular sin. In Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, he wrote, When I kept silent, my bones grew old. He's talking about God's disciplining hand being on him to teach him to repent, to correct him when he wasn't repenting. God does that graciously for his people. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice how important it was. David was not not receiving that relief that he needed. He was getting the disciplining hand of God, but then he confessed his sins, and God forgave him and relented. Confess your guilt before God. A second thing we see that repentance involves is confessing your helplessness as a sinner against God. Do you confess your guilt and helplessness as a sinner against God? We were asked, and we all said yes. Because not one of us is righteous in and of ourselves. We are each incapable of meeting that perfect standard, that perfect righteousness necessary to dwell in God's glory. He can't abide that in his presence. So something has to happen to remedy that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Galatians 3.10, for as many 
as are under the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's why what we saw some time back when we studied Galatians, that uh, Paul's point was to show us that the, the law wasn't there for us to say, oh, here's a way that I can become a better person and earn my own way into heaven. But rather, it was to be a mirror to us to show us we need a Savior because we can't do it. I'm a sinner. And this law guided me to that Savior like a tutor guiding the child to school. We of ourselves are helpless and hopeless. Think of Augustine of Hippo who spoke of how the taint of sin is on everything that we think and say and do. So that even if I do something that God says is good and I'm apart from Christ, I do something that God says is good, I'm bringing some sin along with it. And so God is angrier with me than he was before I did that good thing. And if I refuse to do the good thing because I don't want to bring the sin along with it, well, then I'm disobeying God and not doing the good thing. So God is righteously angry with me for not doing that good thing. That isn't to point out that God is somehow a big old meanie in the sky or something. It's to show us that we so desperately need God's forgiveness. We need a, we need a Savior. Because the flip side of that coin, of course, is that if I have a Savior, if Christ has borne my sins and paid their penalty, then when I do that good thing that God commands, God doesn't see the sin that I, belong, that I bring along with it. He's forgiven that sin, and so that good thing counts as good. But we ourselves are helpless and hopeless apart from Christ. That just shows how hopeless we are, and that was Augustine of Hippo's point in talking about that taint of sin that's on everything that we think and say and do. But Paul continues in Galatians 3.11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Faith, a particular faith in Jesus Christ, is the instrument of our justification, our being counted righteous before God. So Paul writes in Romans 3, 23 through 25, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent set forth as a propitiation. That's a satisfaction of God's anger at sin. As a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Confess your helplessness as a sinner against God. That you are one who sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Depend upon that Savior. So that is our next point. The third thing that is asked in that query, professing Jesus Christ, Son of God, as your Savior and Lord. The query thus asks, do you profess Jesus Christ, Son of God, as your Savior and Lord? That is the only way to have forgiveness of your sins. In Romans 1.4, Paul tells us that Jesus' resurrection actually declared him to be the Son of God that he claimed to be. And then Romans 10.9 tells us, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or really that is, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, meaning that he is exactly who he claimed to be, even that he was God incarnate, you will be saved. 
Paul says. Then after elaborating on confessing and believing these things, Paul explains in verse 13 of Romans 10, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's quoting Joel 2.32, which uses the name of Yahweh. To confess Jesus is Lord is to call on Yahweh. So in other words, Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Yahweh. This right there, those few verses of Romans 10 shoot down the beliefs of the claims of the Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus is not Jehovah. Oh, yes, he is. But professing, professing that, professing that fact, depending on Jesus as Savior, is to be saved. He must be Lord and Savior. We say Savior and Lord here in this query, and it would probably be better to have it the other way around, but I'm not going to, to make that argument before synod or anything. It's not a hill to die on. But uh, there are many today who sadly think that that uh, Jesus can be their Savior even if he's not their Lord. And they'll say later on, well, I'll make Jesus the Lord of my life. Well, no, Jesus is Lord. I don't make him Lord. He just is Lord. And if Jesus isn't your Lord, if you're not submitting to him as Lord, then he is not your Savior. But we certainly see that confessing him as Lord is to be saved. Romans 5, 8 and 9, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. He is the Savior. Profess Jesus Christ, Son of God, as your Savior and Lord. A fourth thing about living a life of repentance is that it involves dedicating yourself to Christ's service. Do you profess Jesus Christ and dedicate yourself to his service? Romans 12.1 I beseech you, therefore, brethren, therefore, because of all the things I've been saying thus far in this letter, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. As Christ has given himself as the once-for-all sacrifice in his death, there is no longer a dead sacrifice required. There's no longer a death required to propitiate God, to satisfy his wrath against his people's sins. We have no dying sacrifices to offer. But instead, what do we do? We offer our bodies, ourselves, as living sacrifices. People who dedicate their very lives, the way they live, to Christ, to serve Him. This, Paul says, is reasonable. It is your reasonable service. The word he uses there in the Greek, logikane. It's the word that we get logic from. It is logical to serve Christ in such a way because he died for our sins and so there's no death required. So we live our lives for him. Live your life for Jesus because he gave his life for you. Dedicate yourself to Christ's service. Number five, 
Repentance involves endeavoring to forsake all sin. So this is the turning around part of repentance, isn't it? That we've recognized that we're heading the wrong direction, now we turn around to God. As the query asks, do you promise that you will endeavor to forsake all sin? Ephesians 4.22, that you put off concerning the former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. This is who you used to be outside of Christ, and God is calling upon you to take it off, to put it off. And it's the language there of putting off is like taking off a garment, taking off a coat. If I were to take this jacket off, that would be the putting off in the way that Paul is talking of here. That we put off the things that are part of our old fallen nature. In Romans 12, 2, he commends, do not be conformed to this world. In James 4, 4, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So we put off those things which are part of the fallen world. We endeavor to forsake all sin. So lastly then, six, conforming your life to Christ's teaching and example. Repentance involves conforming your life to Christ's teaching and example as the query concludes as we promise and to conform your life to his teaching and example. Do you promise that? In John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. You want to show that you love Christ? Keep his commandments. And if you can do that, if you find that you really do that out of love for Christ, well, that means that you really are born again. You really are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is really working within you. And so you can have assurance of salvation. After telling us to put off our old sinful selves in Ephesians 4.22 and verse 23, Paul says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So you put off that old thing, you're taking on a new thing. Likewise, he says in Romans 12.2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As your mind is renewed by God's grace, you are able to understand and to believe his commandments. And you're able to prove, that is, show forth the things that please our creator. You're able to follow Christ's teaching and example. 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 4.13, Paul exhorts us to come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How do we come to the measure of the stature or the fullness of Christ? First of all, it involves knowledge, you'll notice. You have to grow in the knowledge of the things that please God. And so, of course, we only find that in Scripture. So we look to Scripture, and we see examples of other believers who are following the Scriptures, and we follow those things. We particularly look to Christ, and we see how does he behave in his perfect obedience to God's law. And we endeavor after that, so that over time, as we learn to be less sinful and more righteous, as we, as Peter says, die more and more into sin and live unto righteousness, then we are able more to reflect Christ. We become more like him. And as Paul uses the language there in Ephesians 4, 13, of growing up to the measure of the fullness of Christ. 
eventually, by God's grace in the world to come, we will have forsaken all sin. But for now, work to conform your life to Christ's teaching and example. So just to recap, live a life of repentance. A life that shows that you are transformed in mind. You're transformed, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. A life that turns from sin unto God. To do that, confess your guilt before God, that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. Confess your helplessness as a sinner against God, that you can't earn your own salvation. As a sinner, you can do nothing to satisfy God's just wrath at your sins. Nothing you do of your own, of your own efforts, of your own thoughts, can undo the guilt and its sentence. Profess Jesus Christ, therefore, the Son of God, to be your Savior and Lord. Know Him as God incarnate. Depend on Him alone for your standing before God. He paid the penalty for your sins and lived a righteous life prior to that, that it might be that righteousness might be applied to your life. Dedicate yourself to Christ's service. It's reasonable that as He died for your sins, you would live to serve Him. Endeavor to forsake all sin. God did not save you from sin that you might revel in it and do whatever you please, but that you would forsake it. Indeed, He renews you so that you will be forsaking it. So you don't return to your old sinful ways. And conform your life to Christ's teaching and example. Show that you love Him by obeying His commandments. Be holy as He is holy. Learn from His teachings and from His example how to show your love for God, the God who has rescued you from your sins and their consequences. Let's pray. Lord, help us to do these things. For apart from You, we are helpless. Conform us to Christ that in every way we might grow up to the fullness of His image as we indeed now pray in His name. And help us especially to be prepared in heart to come to Your table next Lord's Day. For we pray these things in the name of the One who gave Himself for us. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.